So, Keith, if, if you had to guess, what former longtime NFL coach would you think uh, did the ceremonial coin toss at a Division Three game this weekend? What former longtime NFL coach, Don Shula? Don Shula's a great guess. Give me another guess. Um, Bill Cower. Okay, um, that's a really cool guess, too. Uh, let's see. In the Don Shula mold, let's stay in the same division. Ooh, uh, Raymond Berry. Is Ray Berry alive? Wasn't he the coach of the Patriots? <laughs> um, I don't know who Raymond Berry is. I'm sorry. Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells will be good. Um, this is a guy who uh, his um, Marv Levy. Marv Levy. There you go. See, Marv Levy. I don't know if I would have gotten Marv. I probably would have gone Don Shula out of the uh, out of the gate too, since he's got a stadium named after him. But uh, if you know, if you know how much Marv Levy uh, seems to love Division Three football, you probably would have gotten to him eventually, like you did. Now, let me ask you this: Where do you think he did the coin toss? Co College. Good guess. Give me one more. Buffalo State. Aurora. Oh, be- uh, yeah. Okay. I see it. When Don Beebe needs a drop on this podcast, we are certainly going to drop his name a lot, apparently. Will it be the Leon Let play? Don Beebe. Don Beebe. Don Beebe caught him from behind. Don Beebe. Don Beebe caught him from behind. No, there's no drills for that. That's something that's your character. Don Beebe. Don Beebe. Come on, no, no. I think most people know what you're referring to. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. This thing we do twice a week, talking about the largest division of college football. And we welcome you to podcast number 248, the one with all the fourth quarter touchdowns. It's our podcast for October 7th of 2019. I'm the executive editor of D3Football.com, Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan, the former player and former Around the Nation writer. It joins Pat on every podcast. Almost. I was going to say, I, I'm fairly certain there was a contract involved between you and uh, the uh, National Committee Chair, Jim Catanzaro. Oh, no! That uh, then, like, the very next podcast you uh, didn't follow up on, more or less. I don't think it was the very next podcast, but a man is entitled to an occasional break. I'm, I'm at, like, 244 of 248. That's a pretty good average. What will be my passing efficiency? What I really need to do, and maybe we should do this for the off-season podcast, if I could find someone else to do the producing, I would be so much happier about the fact that we're starting this at midnight Eastern time. But it's only 11 Central time, so you're kind of an hour ahead of me. I'm exactly an hour ahead of you, but uh, it's not helping me out a whole lot. But it was a great week, week five of Division Three football. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the big win for Texas Lutheran over Hardin-Simmons. We'll get that a little bit later. Uh, UW-Eau Claire couldn't keep its magic going for a second week. Close games for a bunch of teams in the middle of the rankings. A loss for Hobart. We'll talk a bit about that. And, of course, Keith, things that happen right after we record podcasts but before we release them often involve St. Thomas and their conference and Division 3 and we'll have to talk about that in just a minute but I want your uh, real quick thumbnail response to the thought that uh, St. Thomas could leave Division 3 altogether. Well yeah, I don't think it's their choice and um their options are rather limited because um there aren't too many low-level conferences, I guess for lack of a better way to put it. That would uh, that would accept a team that's got kicked out of one of the best conferences in Division Three um, for being essentially too good, and that's more probably more across all sports than in football. But certainly the some of the football numbers, uh, the ninety sevens and the eighty four zeros, had something to do with it. Um, we thought the WIAC might make a good fit, and we thought maybe even St. Thomas was inadvertently serving up an argument for itself to be in the WIAC when it lost last week to uh, to Wisconsin-Eau Claire and uh, showed that it would be fairly competitive with, uh, with middle-of-the-road programs in that conference. But it got an invite from the Summit League, and then there was some speculation, I guess, too, that the Pioneer League would be a good fit as well. So the strange thing, I think, for us from where we sit is we've never seen uh, you know, we see conference movement all the time, but we've never seen a team 
um, jump from D3 straight to D1, and it, they even have to uh, apply for a waiver to do so. Keith's definition of a thumbnail sketch is different than mine, but that is okay. We got to get right in here and remind you that uh, this podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It, our friends at gottahabitfanfoams.com. These are the guys with the officially licensed 3D foam fan wall signs for five Division Three schools, uh, four uh, national semifinals from last year, Mount Union, Mary Harden Baylor, UW-Whitewater, Johns Hopkins, and also East Texas Baptist, uh, the Division One Service Academies. These things that look great on the wall, they're easy to put on the wall, and they just kind of look real sharp. Thumbnail sketch, they are sharp. Piece thumbnail back down to a more standard size. Layers of uh, laser-cut true color foam stacked thick to create this 3D effect. You can hang them on your wall. You can, uh, you know, have them at the tailgate. They look really sharp. Uh, Keith would say, if he were longer-winded, that it's like a fathead except three-dimensional, and that's pretty cool. So go to gottahabitfanfoams.com to see what they have it. And you know, if you are a person who's in charge of the alumni association or you're someone who's in charge of marketing, look into getting this for your Division Three school because it is possible, it is cool, and we want to see it on gottahabitfanfoams.com. Big day, big night in Division Three. Obviously, on Saturday, I and mean, when you have more than 110 games, it's hard to not have something that's pretty awesome. I had to step away from Division Three for a little while during Saturday evening, and I come back to try to finish up wrapping up the wrap-ups on the website and getting the info out for the top 25 voters and working on my own ballot. And I'm just kind of scrolling down the scores to make sure nothing crazy happened on Saturday night. And I didn't get very far because right there on the line where we're talking about the number six team in the country, that's uh, Harden-Simmons. They lost to Texas Lutheran on, uh, uh, on some pretty crazy plays that we'll talk about a little bit later. And then, of course, Little Brass Bell and lots of other things that happened on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, something crazy is bound to happen when you have that many teams uh, in action. But it's been the past couple of weeks now where we have a top 10 team going down. And, and in the case of North Central, it was against another top 10 team or at least a highly ranked team. And um, that's not as much of a surprise. But the Harden-Simmons result uh, certainly came as a bit of a shock. Pat, my Saturday was like uh, similar to yours in one respect in that the, the North Central Wheaton game kicked off at 2 o'clock Eastern. So... Uh, I guess that's one your time, mm-hmm. and um, all the chatter we have a we have a, a way that we keep in touch. You and I and Greg and Frank and Adam and Ryan uh, on game days, uh, and some of us participate more than others. But uh, I was sort of lurking more than than participating on Saturday, and a lot of chatter in the in the channel about Brock Rutter. And, uh, and North Central's performance offensively early in that game. And as I was the person who was out on the limb uh, for Wheaton in, in the quick hits pit picks on Friday, I thought, man, you know, there goes my pick. And uh, sure enough, Wheaton did what it has done now for the past several seasons in games against North Central, play really well in the second half. The defense um, stepped up, and, uh, and then Wheaton was able to put some points on the board, pulled that one out 35-21, and shook up the top 10 a little bit. Yeah, you know, as as people were talking about uh, quick hits, and it was even mentioned on the air on the Wheaton broadcast, uh, it occurred to me that I probably misinterpreted the question. What I took that question to mean was, is it going to be more of a high-scoring game or a low-scoring game? Now, it turns out I'm probably kind of wrong either way in going, A, if I was apparently picking North Central to win, um, that didn't happen. And if I was picking a high-scoring game, I don't know, in Division Three these days... 35 to 21, an average of 28 points per team is probably not particularly high scoring anymore. No, I think it's that's a, you know high end, middle of the road, high middle. Um, but but uh, certainly, yeah, not not anything that's super eye opening. And Pat, I was like you, the the question I thought could have been taken uh, multiple ways, and I didn't. I don't want to pretend like I put a whole ton of thought into that answer. I just thought. I watched this uh, a good a good bit of the Illinois Wesleyan game, and, and Wheaton was really great defensively, and they seem to have North Central's number for the past several seasons. And um, you know, as great as Brock Rudder has been, as great as that offense, particularly the offensive line for North Central, has been, uh, for some reason, you know, Wheaton just has them figured out. 
So I, in the beginning of the day, typically am like bouncing around to a lot of games. I'm making sure that we have all the noon games, at least like we have their halftime scores on the website and the one o'clock games and that sort of thing. So when a two o'clock Eastern game comes around, I am basically kind of wrapping things up and I get to it about halftime. And that's about what I get to get a really good look at this game. And then, you know, just watching Wheaton's defense just coming at and having its way with the offensive line up front and sacking Brock Rutter on consecutive plays, one to end the third quarter, one to start the fourth, ended up with seven sacks on the day. And uh, although Rutter had some, you know, good numbers passing wise, 27 of 45 for 313 yards, wasn't picked off, you know, just basically that pressure up front made it really difficult for him to uh, get anything done, especially in the second half. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's interesting about Wheaton is because it recruits from this pool of um, folks who, who want to go to this highly regarded Christian institution, it uh, sometimes lands players who are um, you know slightly above the, the caliber of maybe a normal D3 player. I don't know if that's like similar to Ivy League or, or quite what it is, but they really have a, a good group of guys up front, uh, a relentless group of, of pass rushers, and you know, when you're coming at a team um, from all angles and when you can when you can make a team one dimensional or when you can, you know, when you you, you know, when you're playing North Central, you're going to get, uh, you know, they're going to try to establish the run, but you're going to get uh, quite a heavy dose of, of Brock Rutter trying to push the ball down the field. You know, Wheaton being able to counteract that and Wheaton having had success now over the past several years. Um you know, with, with Mike Swider and the gang kind of having that uh, that North Central attack figured out. It certainly, um, again, shakes up the, the top 10, not necessarily um, because North Central would even drop out of the top 10 for losing to another highly regarded team. But it does mean that if Wheaton is able to run the table and, and they have not been able to in in the in recent years, mm-hmm. when they've gotten this win over North Central, they'll end up losing uh, a game or games elsewhere it does make the the playoff push now a little more interesting because you put north central for the time being in that pool of teams which we think is is right now there's five at large bids and um you're looking at at a at a pool of teams of potential runners up who now uh, have really some one really strong team in it and potentially someone like um St. Thomas, someone like Harden Simmons hanging on for dear life in that pool because they they can't have any more uh, missteps. One of the big things that comes out of this game for Wheaton on the uh, negative side is that Spencer Peterson, who's a guy who's been uh, a number two quarterback for them, uh, a backup guy, a, a wildcat guy. I'm not sure how to describe how they use him, but they use him and they've used him as a change of pace fairly uh, fairly frequently. Uh, left the game with an injury and is not expected to return this season. If you're listening, by the way, as a Division three basketball fan, uh, that's also a, a big blow to the uh, Wheaton men's basketball team. But that is something that you'll have to keep an eye on, how they continue to... Uh, use uh you know players on offense luke anthony had a great game on saturday as the quarterback for the thunder 21 of 30 for five touchdowns 351 yards we talked about the close calls in a lot of games uh, just at a thumbnail sketch now i think thumbnail sketch needs to be a thing i've said that like three times in this podcast already yeah i gotta add that to the drinking game i guess so yes Brilliant. someone uh someone compile the drinking game and and let us know Salisbury had to come back on the road to defeat Montclair State. Uh, Johns Hopkins survives as Ursinus uh, attempts a uh, fourth-quarter comeback. Susquehanna and Dickinson, a pretty close game, and Susquehanna just kind of grinds out the clock on them and uh, doesn't let uh, doesn't let Dickinson basically have uh, a chance to have the ball in the last five minutes. Uh, those are three teams that did well in terms of mid- to low-ranked teams hanging on and winning games. Not the same with Hobart. Hobart uh, against Union. Union jumps out big, and Hobart kind of never gets back into it. Yeah, and and I think this is a big feather in the cap for for the the restoration or the revival of of Union football. You know, it went through quite the downstretch. There was a time not all that long ago, Pat, where where uh, Union and Hobart was sort of the game in the Liberty League, and uh, I guess it's getting close to to that status again. Although you have um, you have RPI being a factor as well. You, you, you. I think just yeah to to watch Union 
pretty much dominate from start to finish a team that dominated Brockport from start to finish back in week one. It does um, give us a, a little bit of transitive property weirdness. And I think it also means, and this is probably true of Salisbury, Johns Hopkins, Susquehanna, the three teams you mentioned earlier, and I'd throw Wesley, Delaware Valley into that mix as well. We're going to have a mix of playoff worthy or playoff quality teams with a lot of overlapping play. And they're going to be a real tough group to seed when it comes to to playoff time, if things keep going as they are, because I think we see a lot of pretty darn good teams and they're already a tough group for us to, to separate in the top 25 as voters. But I don't know if we see any really uh, major elite team in the East. I mean, I think Muhlenberg is the one that's floated up highest in, in the rankings and, and certainly they deserve to be where they are. But um, but they also are you know very capable of of playing close games with the other good teams in the Centennial. So I think we're going to see a glut of these uh, Northeast and Mid Atlantic teams that uh, that end up that finish the season maybe nine and one, and they're going to be really tough to to separate. I think when it comes to to playoff seeding time, we'll definitely have to look forward to the Union's games with Ithaca and with RPI. Uh, Union wins 23-7. to seven. Frank Rossi of In the Huddle was there, and he chatted uh, with a handful of people for us. First, uh, you'll hear Jeff Behrman. He's the head coach. And then you'll hear quarterback Will Bellamy and running back I.K. Irabor. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, first off, I think, I mean, Kevin does a great job with Hobart and uh, that program and, and their players. Uh, I got a lot of respect for him, his coaching staff, and his players. Uh, they, they do things the right way. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think anytime you, you, you can beat a, another good program, it's a, it's a good feeling for you. Uh, but, you know, I try not to think of the past as much. You try to learn from the past as much as you can. But I, I will say that uh, there was a moment there where I, where I did think, wait, this is what it was last year. So we got to just make sure we stay focused. So absolutely, it definitely creeps in. IK, with the assistance of Will to a certain degree, but especially the offensive line, uh, let's just talk about that grouping, that, that seven some of uh, players, which is more than seven because obviously you switch out uh, from time to time. But those guys today really played their butts off, it seemed like. IK with 188 yards and Will with no interceptions and ran the ball himself a little bit. Mm -hmm. Give me the accolades that you have for them. I, I, you're probably one of their worst critics during the week uh, during film study, but today you got to feel pretty good about what they did. I, I feel great, you know, and it used you said it with the with the old line the tight ends i mean they they do the dirty work they definitely uh you know get us they're the engine they get us going they get us rolling and ik and and will get a lot of credit and andre gets a lot of credit as well but uh you know from will's perspective he he ran the game plan the way exactly the way we we talked about it and uh, what we expected out of him he found the open receivers that uh that and, and he was accurate so i was uh, very excited and, and happy for the way he played um and then ik um, you know, he's a, he's a special talent, and uh, you know, I think we, we were rotating the backs a little bit at the beginning, but there was a, just a gut feeling that I felt like, you know what, IK is, is, is hot a little bit right now, so let's just keep feeding him. Good job. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. So, um, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, just really, you know, the, the game plan was to, to run the ball and to play action here and there, and uh, I think we only dropped back one time. Um, and, uh, you know, the guys up front allowed us to stick to that game plan and do that. So this year, coming into this game, uh, we made it a point as an offense to to kind of flush the pass. We didn't want to we didn't want to think about the game last year, but deep down, we all knew we've we've circled this game on our schedule for a long time now. So coming into this game, we knew that if we protected the football and our offensive line did their job as they did, we'd come out with a W. Ik, I'm, I'm going to look down here. I have to 188 yards rushing uh, total here, two touchdowns, and you know just. Possession. You created possession for your team all day long. How's this one feel? It feels, it feels real good, to be honest. I told my line I'll, I'll trust them. If, if I trust them, I'll find, I'll find a hole. Yeah, let's talk about this line. Uh, give some shout-outs to those guys. Uh, like our center, E-Reds, he literally told me to this game. He said, find, follow me, and, I'll, and you'll get yards. I promise you that. You got I did. That's 188 I did. of them, <laughs> nonetheless. So, guys, 4-0. You beat a ranked team. First, make a case. Is a union a ranked team, do you think, in your mind coming up this next week? What, what would you tell voters right now? Um, I tell voters that this is our, what, fourth straight win against a ranked opponent. You know, I don't really care about the rankings too much. Uh, the goal of this season is to win a Liberty League championship, which hasn't been done in a long time here at Union, and then make a deep run in the playoffs. But my case is that this is not the first ranked uh, opponent that we've beaten. 
And I, I want you, even though his numbers were, you know, compared to yours, 98 yards, 10 for 17, so efficient at least, no touchdowns. Talk about this guy, because he's been kind of through it here at Union. I, I've been watching from afar, obviously. G give uh, folks kind of uh, your thoughts on this QB right here. Honestly, Bellamy is a really smart QB. Like, he knows when to pass the ball, where, where his open guys are. And if he needs to run, he'll run. It's kind of an unconventional mic drop you hear at the end of that clip, but thanks to Frank Rossi for bringing us that. Congrats to Union. Let's talk about, uh, Keith, uh, some of the games we were looking at in the President's Athletic Conference. We mentioned on Friday's podcast we were waiting to see what the outcome of Westminster and Case Western Reserve was, and then uh, Grove City made things very interesting for us in taking out Carnegie Mellon, a very interesting Saturday in that part of the country. Yeah, and... and Right, I had Carnegie Mellon uh, for the time being hanging in the in the top twenty-five at number twenty-five, and Grove City uh, dispatched of of the Tartans in double overtime. I think most people started the season thinking maybe W and J would would be the class of that conference with a challenge from Case Western Reserve, and it, it turned out it was it was Case and uh, and Westminster who were uh, who were looking pretty good, and and they had the big clash on Saturday. And uh, not unlike the the Hobart Union game, which was a fairly low scoring game, and, and Union grinded that game out with uh, with a great running game. This one was uh, was twenty one thirteen Case Western Reserve, and really Case, I think, who for a long time has been known for having great quarterbacks and, and having a, a fairly prolific passing game. This one they were impressive with uh, with not just the run offense, but the run defense. Uh, 101 to 19 was the was the rushing difference in that game. And man, to hold a team to uh, to 19 rush yards on 31 attempts, that's 0.6 yards per rush. Defensively, I think um, for Case Western should be pretty pretty happy with their day against Westminster and happy with uh, with their position now in the pack race. Yeah, this is uh, one of those games with two fourth quarter touchdowns and Keith. Uh, also, I think when I think about Case and the, the times they've been successful over the past decade or so, it's on the strength of a quarterback. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Drew Saxon is just a sophomore. 301 yards passing on Saturday is kind of living up to that as well. But I don't really think of these games as being, you know, big games for Case are usually not 21 to 13. No, I mean, I think they've, always, they've been known as a, as a fairly prolific offensive team. And uh, the offense got it done in the fourth quarter. You know, sometimes you uh, your team does have to sort of grind it out over the course of a game, and and you know you just can't get anything going, or you start to get something going, and there are turnovers. This one was seven zero at the half. Westminster put a couple of touchdowns on the board on long pass plays in the third quarter, a forty two yarder and a seventy yarder, and all of a sudden, you know, Westminster feels like it's in pretty good shape. And uh, Case Western is able to put together really not even drives in the fourth quarter, just scored quickly twice uh, with about 12 minutes left and again in the final two minutes. And, um, you know, whether you do it by generating turnovers or whether you do it by putting together a 15 play drive at the end of the game, you know, how, however you get it done, especially in those games as a, you know, as a player and as a coach. And as a fan, those ones where, you're, where you just can't get anything going all day and then you're able to break through a couple of times in the fourth quarter and the defense is able to hold, those are pretty satisfying. This conference race, far from done. Case Western Reserve is on top right now at 3-1, and one, but there's or 3-0, and oh, and there's four teams tied at 3-1, and one, including, I think, serious conference contenders as Westminster, Carnegie Mellon at W&J. They've already played Westminster, obviously. Uh, they have W&J coming up this weekend, and then they close the regular season with a game against Carnegie Mellon. Game ball. Game ball. Game ball. Game ball. Game ball. Here's where Keith and I start the rundown, and we start it with game balls. Keith, my game ball is going to go to Texas Lutheran strong safety Daniel Enriquez on a night in which TLU scored three times on defense and defeated Harden-Simmons. Enriquez is one of those guys, and it's someone that people need to know about on the Bulldogs' defense. With the game tied and the Cowboys in the hurry-up offense at the end of the first half, Enriquez stepped in front of a pass that was intended for Breon Simmons and outraced Harden-Simmons to the end zone to give Texas Lutheran a 17-0 lead with 12 seconds left in the half. He finished that run with some nifty footwork as well to get inside the pylon. Here's the call from Texas Lutheran's broadcast. 
Cowboys going up tempo. Wooten back out of the gun looking to throw again. Manny Longoria is being held oh. and it picked off. Interception. 40, 35, 30, 25, 20. Daniel Enriquez to the five. He's pushed out of bounds. Did he keep his feet? Touchdown, Texas Lutheran. Daniel Enriquez with the pick six. He kept his feet. Almost tackled inside the five. Kept his balance and kept the ball inside the right pylon. Enrique's finished the day with two interceptions and seven solo tackles as the Bulldogs improved to three and one. His other interception also set up a first half touchdown. I'm going to give my game ball to Wesley, which famously lost four games by five points last season for being resilient and figuring out how to win the close one so far this season. On one hand, you could argue that they play in too many close scrapes for the 12th ranked team in the country, but with 14th ranked Salisbury up next, let's take a moment to appreciate how the Wolverines prevailed in four overtimes at Delaware Valley then rallied from 17 down to kick the tying and game-winning field goals in the final four minutes, 20 seconds at Endicott, and then this week survived a Rowan rally and won 21-20 when the profs missed a late point after. Given Wesley's kicking troubles last year and over the years, maybe this is just luck or reversion to the mean, but I think there's something to be said for having a team resilient enough to constantly do enough to win close games and to survive the absences of key players and other pitfalls you encounter over long seasons. And for that, the Wolverines get my game ball. It's time to talk about our teams on the rise, teams gaining ground or who should gain ground in the top 25. And Keith, for me, that team this week is Hendricks. We've talked about the Warriors a little bit on this podcast this season, remembering that they got Miles Thompson back. That's a, a 2017 first-team All-South Region guy at quarterback. Having a guy like that has certainly helped in a 4-0 start, and that 4-0 start includes a Week 2 win at Texas Lutheran. And, of course, Texas Lutheran won at Hardin-Simmons, improved to 3-1, if you can remember back to 45 seconds ago. Hendricks is unbeaten right now. Uh, they have a win that looks even better this week, and they got a couple votes on my ballot and a handful on others as they head into next week's showdown at Barry. And since Hardin-Simmons beat Trinity, voters who follow result threads like that are obligated to vote for Hendricks before Texas Lutheran, then Hardin-Simmons, and then the Tigers. Meantime, I think our listeners might expect Wheaton to be a riser, but most voters were pretty high on the Thunder before the win over North Central. I only had to move them from seven to five this week, and there are five voters who have Wheaton ranked even higher than five. So my riser this week is St. Thomas, up five spots from 22 to 17. Keeping the Tommies at 22 last week was a bit of a compromise for me between losing to unranked Wisconsin-Eau Claire but outgaining them for 79 to 205 and falling a two-point conversion shy at the end. I don't think dropping the Tommies out entirely at that point would have been too harsh. The wins were against Trinity International and Hamlin. In comes a 2-2 two two Concordia-Moorhead team that has held its own in losses against Wisconsin Lacrosse and UW-Whitewater, and voters want to see how the Tommies bounce back. They must have had a heck of a week of practice or a great game plan because they look like a ranked team again in smashing the Cobbers 51-6. Other voters like the Tommies even more than I do since they're at number 11 overall this week, and I think voters are presented a similar situation as we watch Harden Simmons going forward following a loss. You know, for the record, and I was reminded of this a few years ago, uh, St. Thomas has never lost to Concordia Moorhead under Glenn Caruso. But let's talk about the poll mechanics here a little bit, obviously, since we're talking about the top 25. We saw this a couple weeks ago when, you know, Mary Harden Baylor lost a bunch of number one votes. And then, hey, they looked like Mary Harden Baylor again, got one of them back, have been smashing teams. I think there's definitely... Uh, um, let's say a mentality among some voters that would say, okay, so you look bad this week, but if you look like yourself again, I'm just going to forget that that thing happened. And it seems like that's probably a little bit of what happened here with St. Thomas. I would say so. I also think that uh, St. Thomas ahead of Wesley, considering, you know, Wesley is unbeaten, but you talk about all those scrapes. I know you talk about them as positives. I don't, I don't really see it that way. I think that this is, uh, like it has been a lot of times, it's a leading indicator of a team that is going to stumble at some point because they should be blowing out Endicott, and they should probably be blowing out Rowan, and they haven't done either of those things. I mean, I think that's a perfectly valid argument. I think for this particular Wesley team, I view that as in getting over the, the hump they couldn't get over last year, whereas if you were giving me that same uh, set of results for, say, you know, Bethel, 
uh, you know, a, a team, you know, maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't view it as such a, a need or such a positive, but it's certainly part of the reason why top 25 voting is, is a bit of an art, a bit of a science. I think we at one point tried to create the word art science on a podcast. Um, it, 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 you know, you, you do have to go, go with your gut sometimes. And I think the cool thing is uh, when we take 25 uh, votes in, in the ballot, a lot of times it evens out those, those gut feels. And, um, but when, when you look deep at the spread, most of us have the, the same teams around the same spot in the poll. So I think uh, we're all right now maybe giving teams like Wesley, Linfield, St. Thomas, um, Harden Simmons, you know, the benefit of the doubt from their, their name recognition, whether they've lost a game or whether they've uh, had a close call. St. John's had a close call in week one. But I also think over the course of a season, most even really good teams have uh, have one or two of those. We saw Mary Harden Baylor have one of those uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then this week, you know, they win whatever it was, 65-0. So, um, you know, it, it does happen. I think you're right. When it happens a couple of times, you start to look at it as, uh, you know, maybe portends something something bad. I keep pushing people who ask about poll mechanics on Twitter to listen to the podcast because we do talk about this stuff, and I do think it is useful. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. My team that will take a fall in the top 25 is UW Lacrosse. Eagles fell from number 16 to well out of the top 25 after the 38-20 loss at UW Platteville on Saturday. That's maybe a bigger fall than one would normally see after losing to an undefeated team on the road, but the voters had already forgiven, so to speak, one lacrosse loss when UWL lost at Dickinson State in September. Dickinson State, an NAIA program, currently 4-1, but does not play in one of the NAIA's strong conferences. Platteville more or less swaps spots with lacrosse, and lacrosse falls out of the poll. My team taking a fall is Harden-Simmons. North Central's loss to Wheaton, a fellow top 10 team, seems forgivable, but the Cowboys falling to unranked Texas Lutheran has us wondering whether the Bulldogs are really good this year or Harden-Simmons is falling back to the pack. We might not find out much about the Cowboys until the Mary Harden-Baylor game on October 26th since they have a bye and then Bellhaven. I can see voters not dropping the Cowboys completely out of the top 25 since the three defensive touchdowns from the five turnovers Texas Lutheran generated seems an occurrence unlikely to repeat. The stars at night are big and bright. Big in the heart of Texas. <laughs> but you do have that string of wins we mentioned above to consider. Perennially ranked teams, as we just mentioned, like Harden-Simmons, St. Thomas, Linfield, John Carroll, Johns Hopkins, they seem to get the benefit of the doubt after losses, and we'll find out soon if Harden-Simmons deserves it. For my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I am headed to the Northwest Conference, where conference play got into full swing in Week 5 for the first time this season. Puget Sound kicked a short field goal in the final play of regulation to tie the game at 17 and send it into overtime, then scored in its half of overtime to take the lead. George Fox had no trouble getting into the end zone, scoring two plays later, bringing up the conversion attempt. And here's how that went from the Puget Sound Athletics broadcast. Jason Santoni has not missed an extra point all season long. You can hear the Baker Stadium faithful making as much noise as they can. Good snap, good hold, the kick is on its way. No good! UPS wins! 24-23! The extra point was wide right! And the Loggers will win their Northwest Conference opener by a point, 24-23! An absolutely incredible game this afternoon at Baker Stadium. All right, I let that clip run a little longer than usual, but they gave the final score for you. Also, I wanted to highlight at the beginning of it a quality broadcaster jinx right there. How about that one? It was a good one. Meantime, for my off-the-beaten-path highlight, Albright is truly the team that can't catch a break or make its own luck. But the Lions darn sure played a game worth highlighting, although it was FDU Florham that prevailed 50-45. to 45. The Lions went 65 yards and 13 plays to score with 20 seconds left. They go for two, complete the pass, take a 45-44 lead, and finally, it seemed, we're about to break this 14-game losing streak. Albright's first three games were Salisbury, at Mary Harden-Baylor, and Delaware Valley, all of which are ranked in the top 15 as we speak. 
So faced with mere mortal competition, finally the Lions are going to deliver victory. But pick a cliche, play all 60 minutes, it's not over till it's over, something like that. Albright squib kicks to avoid the kickoff return, setting FDU Florham up on the 49-yard line. The Devils run three plays with two completions to set up one final shot. Remember, they only had 19 seconds to work with. From 31 yards out, Anthony Caserta finds Demarcus Price, who, according to the game story on the FDU website, caught the ball with two defenders on him and bowled across the goal line as time ran out. Pat, if we still did play of the week, this would be a shoe-in. Meantime, Albright, which was a 10-win team in 2015 and an 8-win team in 2016 and 2017, continues its rough stretch. But the Florham guys will remember this one forever. They'll remember it even better coming up in uh, just a couple of minutes, that's for sure. we got more to talk about about that game. Surprise! My most surprising result this week comes from the MIAA. That probably makes people think I'm talking about the 51 to nothing game, but that wasn't the most surprising to me. Okay, margin of victory was, uh, I'm not going to lie. But the most surprising outcome to me was Alma winning at Albion 32-28. to The Scots scored 19 points in the fourth quarter. There's more of those fourth quarter touchdowns to rally and win. And it seems like we've had a number of teams scoring three times in the fourth quarter this uh, this year to win. Alma did it by forcing two fourth quarter turnovers, the second of which allowed the Scots to run out the clock. It was just their second win against Albion in the past nine years. And at three and one, Alma has already exceeded its win total from all of 2018. Are there are more good fourth quarter cliches besides play all 60 minutes. That's why they play the game. Is that a good one? You play to win the game. I don't know. All right. My most surprising result came from one of Week 5's four double overtime games. And it wasn't so much Millsap's beating center after finishing regulation tied at 10. That was the stunner. It was that it marked the third straight loss for the Colonels by scores of 20 to 13, 20 to 13, and now 20 to 17 in double overtime. Defeats that must be agonizing for a center team that was getting top 25 love at the start of the season. For my stat of the week, Keith, I am not done mining this FDU Florham Albright game. So you talked about it from the Albright point of view. Let me take it from the FDU Florham side for a second, because Florham goes on to score 23 points in the fourth quarter, win on that final play of the game, as you mentioned. Uh, There's four fourth quarter scoring drives. Uh, One of them started in the third quarter, but uh, the Devils scored on drives of 77 yards, 61 yards, 83, and that last drive of 49. Not one of those is a pick six or a punt return or a blown coverage deep ball. You know, the the kind of things that help you come back from big deficits. These are two 12-play drives, a six-play drive, and the four-play drive that took just the 19 seconds. It culminates in this. I don't know if the video itself would have been play of the week, but this is one of these great, classic, no-broadcaster Division Three highlights. another one of those clips was had which has it all you have someone asking right at the beginning of the clip why they aren't lining up to kick a field goal that's a 48 yard field goal would have been uh in the in division three those are no gimmies Uh, you have people who are presumably parents and then kids later complaining that offside wasn't called when an albright player jumped before the snap and then got back onside well before the snap came uh, then you have the damn cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell. And you also have the sound of like 24 hands clapping. Keith, some football rules are hard to follow. I get that. Offside is not one of them. <laughs> um, I agree. I mean, especially on Sundays, the the more you watch the uh, the NFL, the more confusing it gets. Your eyes will tell you it's a catch or it is past interference, or now you can review these things. Uh, it, it's getting more and more confusing. But offsides is one that that hasn't changed, and especially in the college ranks for years. You can jump offside, and you can get back as long as you don't touch anybody on the other side. And uh, it, it really, uh, for the longest time, it, uh, it's it been one of the more easy rules to, uh, to understand. So 
that was quite the game. We both used it because there was so much there to use, and it was a game that we uh, we thought we'd be keeping an eye on in in quick hits, just for the opportunity for Albright really to uh, to break that losing streak because it's such a uh, a left turn for that program that was so successful and is now uh, on a, a pretty remarkable losing streak. My stat of the week, uh, Pat Rooley sent, sent me this one, and I don't usually take submissions, but this is a man who knows his audience. And, of course, a former defensive back is going to appreciate brothers who had interception return touchdowns on the same day for different schools. Michael Rooms had a 70-yard pick six to put Ithaca up 45-6 at the half against St. Lawrence, while Craig Rooms, a few hours later, did it five minutes before the half, going 44 yards to give Susquehanna a 17-10 lead, points the Riverhawks needed to beat Dickinson. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. This is the time in the podcast where we go to Twitter. If you're watching us on Twitter on Sunday nights, you got to know that we're going to be putting the call out there. We'll be putting out the bat signal for podcast questions, and we'll take the uh, the best slash most interesting ones here on the podcast. And this one comes from Jam Todd Twit, uh, who is a uh, uh, also called Just Airing My Thoughts Out Daily. That's what Jam Todd stands for, apparently. And he says, or asks, with Harden Simmons losing, UST, that's St. Thomas, with a loss already, and John Carroll looking vulnerable, what's your way, way, way seriously too early, but just for fun, pool C picks? And uh, I think I inflected that correctly. Uh, as we were going through this pod uh, podcast, I was kind of jotting down who I thought might be Pool C contenders. Pool C for the uninitiated. First of all, here's your official initi initiation. Uh, pool C is the at-large bids. There are five of them this year. There are 27 uh, automatic bids. Uh, that's Pool A. And five at-large bids, which is Pool C. And in football, you don't need to know about Pool B anymore, so we're not going to bother to explain it to you. There aren't any of those teams. And so as I was going through, I was like, okay, North Central just put itself in this pool by uh, losing to Wheaton on Saturday. Bethel or St. John's, whoever loses that head-to-head -head game on Saturday in the MIAC, is a good at-large uh, contender. Or possibly if there's a three-way tie, things might get interesting in the MIAC. Uh, but that's two spots, uh, one for the CCIW team, one for the MIAC. John Carroll, you know, looking vulnerable, but I think their mathematics are going to look pretty good for them. Uh, Johns Hopkins, a possibility if they don't win the Centennial Conference. And then, you know, Platteville or Whitewater, whoever finishes as the runner-up in the WIEC. And we're already at five. And then I have, like, well, there's probably going to be a quality contender out of the Liberty League, like someone like uh, Union and Ithaca. They're both undefeated. One of them is going to lose when they play. And uh, a 9-1 and one team out of the Liberty League looked look pretty good this year, I think. Uh, Wesley or Salisbury, they're both unbeaten at the top of the end, Jack. They are not going to both be unbeaten at the end of the regular season. Uh, a runner-up in the pack, uh, maybe Cortland. If Cortland doesn't win the Empire Eight, uh, you know, let alone a runner-up out of the American Southwest Conference, that was just like another five teams right there. Uh, it's basically ten teams just at a quick glance in contention for those five spots, which tells you exactly how hard it is to make the Division Three playoffs as, a, as an at-large team. The good news, though, if you're a fan of one of those teams, is that it is way, way too early for this question. And a lot of these teams uh, still have head-to-head -head games to play. And then there are always the, there, there'll be surprise matchups like, say, Bethel and St. Thomas in Week 11. One of those teams could be in, and then the, the wrong one wins, and it knocks the team essentially out of Pool C. So there's, there's a ton left to play. And I, I think there are some surprise spots, right? Like you can always start with, Right now, right, the WIAC looks like there are a couple of good teams up top, plus uh, plus Oshkosh. Uh, we haven't really talked about them, but they're they're hanging around. Same thing in the MIAC. You've got St. John's, Bethel undefeated, St. Thomas with one loss. St. Olaf technically 5-0, uh, but hasn't played any of the three big teams yet. Uh, some of the usual contenders, you know, you mentioned that, um, that the American Southwest doesn't really have a, 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 a pool – C lock uh, like it normally does, but those teams are, could be in the mix. You know, um, just Texas Lutheran, Harden Simmons still have to play Mary Harden Baylor, but I think there are going to be some some oddball um, conferences, or maybe that's not the right word for it, but some maybe some unexpected ones that could come into the mix too as well. Like say Simpson beats Wartburg, and then Wartburg finishes nine and one. Simpson finishes nine and one. You may have a, a Wartburg team uh, or Central yeah. uh, as as a team where. 
they may not have the the great what am i looking for a pedigree from the 21st century sure but uh the the results over regional regionally ranked opponents oh yeah which will when we when we get further in the season we'll we'll tell you listeners for those of you who aren't familiar about the five main playoff criteria it'll be head to head common opponents winning percentage um results against regionally ranked opponents and strength of schedule and basically it, it comes down to those last two in a lot of cases because the teams on the play in the playoff pool uh, will have the same winning percentage nine and one um and they won't have common opponents or head-to-head games so you want you want to have your teams like your Warburg, Simpson Central. They, you want them or or your Salisbury and Wesley to have played like Wesley would be in good shape if they have a win over Delaware Valley. And Delaware Valley is a team that is regionally ranked. Whereas if you if you haven't played anyone else good, essentially, um, that may be the factor that that helps one team get in and uh, and helps another not get in. So if this is starting to sound a little confusing, it's because at this point in the season, it still is. There are way, way too many variables. But I think the answer that that Pat gave, you know, or, or the simple version of it is, you know, look for the conferences that are really dominating. Look for the conferences that have two teams, three teams in the top 25 right now. So you're going to look at the CCIW, the WIAC, the Centennial, I think is is probably maybe a little bit of a sleeper. Uh, keep an eye on on you know the CCIW, the American Southwest, MIAC, the, the usual suspects. Maybe the Northwest Conference, although I think that um, those that that week where Linfield and Whitworth both lost probably pulls them out of the mix. But there there's so many potential. I mean the, the you know Wabash and Wittenberg are still in the mix. There's so many potential uh, Pool C teams right now and those are the teams that will finish second to someone who automatically qualifies for the playoffs i think you're we're going to be at a point like in week nine where you're looking at like 12 legitimate contenders some of them are going to lose in week 10 and week 11 and then you're still going to have eight or nine teams on the board and the committee's going to have to make some tough decisions you know, Keith, you mentioned in that rundown that uh, it could be someone from a conference that's surprising. We didn't talk about the Skyac because we have never basically had to talk about the Skyac as a possible uh, source of an at-large team, but that is certainly very possible, and that would make things very interesting in the bracket as well. We have another Twitter question. This is from Brad Cronin, who is at SJU Johnny, asking, can St. John's go 2-0 and over the next two weeks, facing number 6 Bethel and number 11 St. Thomas? And Keith, I want you to answer as if you were our mutual former boss, Lee Ivory. So the question is not, can St. John's do it? Obviously, it's possible, but will they do it? And I think at the moment, you'd probably have to, to, to expect St. John's to do it, or you'd call them the favorite to do it, given that uh, the the Tommy struggled a couple weeks ago when faced with a really nice pass rush, and Bethel has looked good, but had to str- you know had to scuffle a little bit to beat uh, beat Gustavus. I, you know, I, it's it's hard it's hard to say at this point because I think all three teams have had weeks where they look dominant, and then all three teams have had weeks where they they've had to. Uh, to scuffle to win where, where you saw it with St. John's. And I think the Johnnies are furthest from that. But a, again, I don't know how much you take from a, from a, an, an Augsburg win, right? You look really at the, the best teams they've played I, and, you know, dial up a cliche for this one too, but like you, you, you throw out the record books when say, when St. John's and St. Thomas meet, right? Like weird things have happened in that matchup where, you know, um, you expect a high scoring game and you get 12, nine, or you, or you get, um, you know, weird finishes, you get uh dominant performances by one team when you, when you thought it was going to be a close one. So I don't know that, I don't know that we can, um, that we can say for sure. But I think if you, if, if I was a betting man, I would say that the Johnnies have, uh, have looked pretty good, uh, have gotten progressively better since week one and that you'd probably, you'd, you'd expect them, to go two and zero over the next two, but the the three teams I think are close enough where any foresee any outcome is foreseeable. I'm not a betting man, and I definitely do not advocate you do so here on this college football podcast. Uh, but someone who parlayed those two wins on the same ticket that'd be a pretty good exacta, right? Exacta is the right term for that. Yeah, you had me. Up. I, w- I was right there with you until parlay. 
uh, exact, I think, is horse horse racing, isn't right, it? Right, but, but I think as you pick two winners or a winner and a runner-up on the same ticket, the trifecta is three, right? I don't know. Pat Cummings, help yeah, us out here, buddy. Sure. Yeah, yeah, right. When can we dial up uh, dial a friend? Uh, you know, the thing about St. John's, St. Thomas, uh, only giving up 44 points each this season. And uh, as much as we love to talk about the offensive playmakers, you know, the Jackson Urbans and the Josh Parks of the world, uh, the defenses, I think, may uh, may end up being the difference in this one. All right, so thanks for those questions, you guys. If you're someone from outside of Minnesota who ever wants to ask a question, you need to watch Twitter because this is when we do the thing. Uh, you watch it on a Saturday, Sunday nights, and we get those questions, the best ones, on our podcast. Now we're up to the final word, and, and Keith, my final word is just to say this. You know, just a few days after Grinnell canceled the remainder of its season, we had this bizarre, perhaps, mockery of the game. This whole thing is a travesty and a sham and a mockery. It's a travesty mockery. No making up words. When Beloit and the University of Chicago agreed to play one-minute quarters for the second half after a weather delay, and each team kneeled out the entire second half of Chicago's 48 to nothing win. Now, to be clear, like this was never a contest. Uh, the Maroons averaged 10.8 yards a snap, and they were already spreading the ball around to anyone and everyone with 11 players catching passes in the first half. But man, I'd have to think that a, a college football game should consist of more than 32 minutes before it can be considered official. And I mean, imagine as a, if you're a second or third string player on one of those teams, you'd like to get in in that one. But weather delay, I mean, I imagine there, there are uh, reasons for, for why they did it. It, it. It's been a bizarre couple of weeks, Pat, from from a referee getting shot with a cannon that a fan brought to a game yeah. to uh, to teams folding up, to teams getting invited to D1, to something like this. I mean, there are all kinds of, um, uh, of, of strange things going on. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. I, I think what the, the parallel, and you mentioned Grinnell there at the beginning, Grinnell was down to 28 players when uh, when – it decided that it wasn't going to play out the rest of the season. And, and Beloit, uh, not quite that low, but but certainly overmanned. My last word, I'll keep it simple. Whitworth dropped 82 points on Willamette in the first game back after the Chapman loss. Uh, dang, you mad, bro? And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 248, season 13, episode 10, released on October 7th of 2019 thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week if you like this podcast there's things you can do to show us how you like the podcast you can rate it in apple podcasts google Podcasts, stitcher spotify iHeartRadio, radio you know all the places where podcasts and other sorts of things are available that sort of thing will help other football fans find it and we like good ratings too it uh, reminds us that people are listening you can also leave comments for us on the blog page I should say, we also know people are listening because we have like metrics and stuff like that, but it's also good to know these other things. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know you can join the conversation by registering to post using a legitimate email address at D3Boards.com, and also you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance on this episode provided by Frank Rossi and Dave McHugh. Thanks, to, of course, also to uh, Texas Lutheran and FDU Florum and Puget Sound, uh, whose uh, highlights and clips we use in this edition as well. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, along with the, a lot of the other music we use in this podcast, and you can find his stuff at djmentos.com. Thanks to the guests, Jeff Behrman, Will Bellamy, and I.K. Irabor for their time on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. This bizarre kind of way of just mispronouncing lots of weird words this week, like dot, d3football.com. Oh, I didn't think it was that weird. The words you mispronounce are perfectly normal words. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. <laughs>